Welcome, ravenous readers and culture consumers to Bohemian Geek Studies. The place where nerdy knights gather together to joust and eat turkey legs. I mean, uh, share our insatiable thirst for intellectual (laughs) discussions about our favorite books, shows, and movies. Last week, we began exploring how to become a reader of books in Chapter 1 of Matilda. This week, we'll begin taking a closer look at the Wormwood family unit, how it dysfunctionally functions, and the impact that this has on Matilda in Chapter 2. With that roadmap in mind, uh, Sarah, can you give us a brief recap on Chapter 2, which is entitled Mr. Wormwood, the Great Car Dealer, before we dive deeper into the text? With pleasure. Mr. Wormwood, the great car dealer, or what I like to call the greatliest car dealer, Mm. invites us into the Wormwood home where we see the household dynamic. Even casual readers can immediately discern while the outside facade of the family's home might look nice, frankly, rot grows from within. In this chapter, readers should begin to suspect, if not outright know, that perhaps this chapter's title is a misnomer, which means that the title's name is wrong or inaccurate. In other words, Mr. Wormwood may be a car dealer, but he is far from great. He's an unconscionable businesswoman, businesswoman, businessman, and proud of it. We see for the first, but not last time, how he excludes Matilda despite and perhaps even in light of her genius, Mm -hmm. his outright refusal to accept it, and how important it is to groom his firstborn son to follow his footsteps and break the law for profit. Not to be outdone by her husband, Mrs. Wormwood does not help her branding image in the reader's eyes. She prefers, unfortunately, escaping into the family's television screen rather than dealing with reality. Matilda, though, continues to fight for her right to read, despite her parents' best worst efforts. At the close of this chapter, we are left with the sense that Matilda might have some emotional issues brought on by her family's hijinxes that would consume her without the assistance of outside help. Yep. With that, the theme for today's chapter is identifying the rot from within. Now, with the stage set, let's dive into the text in detail. At the very outset of chapter two, we get a peek into Matilda's thoughts on her home. She views the physical structure of it as quite nice. It's a very comfortable place. It's a three-bedroom piece of real estate with an upstairs floor. The ground floor includes a dining room, living room, and a kitchen. I feel like a realtor, uh, but go ahead, Sarah. <laughs> What's up? I gotta say, that's perfect. And even despite that lovely description and all of the rooms that are available in the Wormwood home, all that glitters ain't gold, as we quickly realize how Mr. Wormwood provides for his family, because it is not exactly on the up and up. Not at all. Yeah, like the chapter's title, Ronnie D's description of Mr. Wormwood's business practices is really a euphemism. How so? Yeah, Mr. Wormwood is described here as, quote, a second a dealer in secondhand cars, and it seems he did pretty well at it. Now, obviously those words appear innocuous enough, but Roald Dahl's usage of it seemed he did pretty well is really something that actually casts doubt on how he does well, because what we soon learn is how proud Mr. Wormwood is to describe to his son and daughter in detail uh, how he tricks his customers by using sawdust. 
Now, I'm not a mechanic. Can you break down this sawdust trick for our readers or particular for people who haven't read the book in some time? Absolutely. Now, I am not a mechanic either, but I play one in this podcast. <laughs> and in real life, the sawdust trick does work. Placing sawdust or thick oil in an engine is, in fact, terrible for a car's health in the long run, but it does quiet noisy gears in the short term, which is exactly what Mr. Wormwood wants. Uh, the sawdust helps Mr. Wormwood make his customers believe they're purchasing healthy purring cars that run smoothly by hiding how noisy and clanky they are in light of their age or poor health. And what's amazing is that he's so consistent with this business practice of his that he knows exactly how long the sawdust trick will last and says that it'll it'll take approximately 100 miles. And 100 miles really isn't that long, but it's prevented him from getting caught this far. And so readers have to be thinking, will it last? And if I had a fancy schmancy infomercial voice, I'd say continue to find out more, uh, read, because you won't believe what happens next. That's great. You, you, you'd be great at infomercials. <laughs> <laughs> this is actually really interesting. Now, one point of note that we should talk about since we in this podcast are deep readers. It's really curious that Matilda tells her father that she doesn't see how sawdust can help him sell secondhand cars. Because actually, Matilda had in fact read a book in which this takes place. Go on. Yeah. Uh, so in chapter one, um, we ha got a list of books that Miss Phelps gives Matilda. Uh, and one of those books is The Grapes of Wrath. Now, in The Grapes of Wrath, in chapter seven, there's a lovely passage in this vernacular Steinbeckian uh, way of writing from the point of view of a secondhand car salesman taking advantage of the poor farmers. And hit our ears with the pertinent passages, please. Absolutely. So the way it goes is in The Grapes of Wrath, it says, Listen, Jim, I heard that Chevy's we're in. Sounds like busting bottles. Squirt in a couple quarts of sawdust. Put some in the gears, too. We gotta move that lemon for $35. Now, maybe Roald Dahl forgot that this was in The Grapes of Wrath. Maybe it was a commonly well-known uh, swindling scheme back in the day that he wouldn't have recognized that crossover. But it's really unlikely that Matilda would have missed that detail, but... Uh, but there it is in the text. So, you know, maybe this is a podcaster flex, huh? Yeah, and let me give a little mental flex right back there. <laughs> Let's assume that Roald Dahl is being intentional here. Mm -hmm, sure. I mean, after all, he's the author, and each word is at least theoretically speaking chosen with care and passed through an editing process prior to publication. Absolutely. So, so what really is he intending if he does remember this passage from Grapes of Wrath, which he gave a big shout out to in chapter one. Mm -hmm. One of two things immediately come to mind, for me at least, as possibilities. First, perhaps he's showing savvy readers that even our little heroine has flaws. She, like her father, like her mother, like us from time to time, can't know and can't remember everything. That's certainly one possibility. But this possibility hangs on the assumption that Roald Dahl remembers the contents of Grapes of Wrath, as does Matilda, and as do the readers of Matilda. That's a lot of speculative ifs and maybes, which just isn't that likely, in my opinion, since Grapes of Wrath isn't exactly on most young readers' lists, let alone most adult readers' lists. I think the other, stronger possibility is that Matilda is passively, aggressively egging her father on to confess to his crimes. Like it or not, she is learning lessons from her father. A 
father who likes to provoke her into an emotional reaction. So just like how the chapter's title means the opposite, perhaps Matilda's words mean the opposite. She's smart. He's not a great car salesman, and she knows it. She knows and she sees how it can help him move cars quickly because she's legitimately read about this exact scam in one of her books, and she's a sponge. It's all about the emphasis. (laughs) Read the line in a feigned innocence, and you can hear it more clearly. I just don't see how sawdust can help you sell secondhand cars, daddy. What she actually wants to see is if she can make her father recognize, if not outright confess to a scam. And I'd wager, in light of what we're going to see as we probe the text further in this exact chapter, he likely knows it too. Otherwise, he wouldn't be relying on criminal activities to crow about how successful he is. Sadly, the immediately following sentences signal that the father's rot may have infiltrated Matilda's mind this early and is taking hold of her thought process. Thank you. And, you know, that's that's a really interesting idea, right? Because even though this is the first time that we hear about this, it's very unlikely that this is the first time an exchange like this has happened between the two of them. And, you know, the following sentences uh, are, are when uh, Matilda's dad said, that's because you're an ignorant little twit, uh, the father said. His speech was never very delicate, but Matilda was used to it. She also knew that he liked to boast, and she would egg him on shamelessly. You can see the unhealthy dynamic just really Mm -hmm. starting to blossom in these early, early pages. And no matter how you interpret the portion of this book, the different ways a single interaction can be interpreted by a reader through partial disclosures of how the characters view their interactions with one another is fascinating to consider and really keeps readers returning again and again to this book and other kinds of series, because only through rereading can we see some of those nuggets hidden by the author. So these are excellent points, and we'll consider more of them as we go. Even if Mr. Wormwood didn't, and really couldn't, because not only did he not reread, he didn't read, period. Um, (laughs) But... You know, just as distressing, uh, if not more so, than Mr. Wormwood's scamming strangers is how he tells his daughter uh, in this chapter and others how she couldn't figure out how to scheme and scam because she's just too stupid. Which just totally is not the case and is further proven in subsequent chapters. Yeah. And, you know, to make matters worse, of course, Mr. Wormwood then pivots to his son, who he's proud to teach the sawdust trick to because he wants his son to join the secondhand car dealership business one day. And he expressly teaches his son the tricks. Such as no one ever got rich by being honest and customers are there to be diddled. Yeah. And Mr. Wormwood explains not only the sawdust scheme, but also another scheme in this chapter in which he changes the mileage on cars so that the car he sells will appear to have been driven much less than they actually had been. Uh, Of course, like all good narcissists, he has an overinflated sense of his own importance and compares his discovery of the mileage scheme to the discovery of penicillin. Now, can you drop some knowledge on us again, whether or not this mileage scheme worked or works in the real world? Yeah, certainly. As far as I can tell, this does work in real life, although this is a trick that wouldn't have been possible once 
cars started to have digital odometers, but they certainly wouldn't have uh, back when th this book was probably set. A good comparison that some of our listeners might know is uh, in Ferris Bueller's Day Off, towards the end of that movie, after they've taken the car out and brought it back with a bunch of miles on it, they run the car backwards to get a few miles off the odometer. And the same principle is at work here. But of course, what Mr. Wormwood does is when he recognizes that you, that you can't just reverse a car thousands of miles, uh, he says, I use my brains. When you've been given a fine brain like I have, you've got to use it. And all of a sudden, the answer hits me, I tell you. I felt exactly like that other brilliant fellow must have felt when he discovered penicillin. Eureka, I cried, I've got it. And that's when he shares that he uses a drill to roll back the odometer about 10,000 miles. And what's his description like? How does Roald Dahl describe this man to the readers? This is really interesting because it's during this corrupt lesson that he's giving that we get our first textual description of Mr. Wormwood. And Dahl describes him as a small, ratty-looking man whose front teeth stuck out underneath a thin, ratty mustache. And that's a really interesting description, right? Because Roald Dahl is somebody who invented numerous adjectives, and he describes Mr. Wormwood here as ratty twice in the same sentence. So we gotta think, Mr. Wormwood must have been ratty indeed. Spot on. The double rat reference goes directly to our theme of identifying the hidden rat rot. <laughs> Not only does Harry Wormwood externally have a rat-like physique, his physical characteristics, um, for us Harry Potter readers, picture Peter Pettigrew, but he internally also personifies the pejorative use of the word rat, aka a hateful person, a liar, or a double-crosser. I mean, that fits him to a T. Yeah, it absolutely does. And so while we know that Mr. Wormwood is completely unadmirable character who has earned this unflattering descriptor. Sarah, can you shed a little light on whether comparing Wor Mr. Wormwood or other unflattering characters to rats is fair to the rats themselves? I'm glad you asked, Will. Let's take a short moment to destigmify the noble, albeit tiny, beast aka pet rats. Domestic rats are actually flipping awesome. They're like tiny little dogs with unfurry, albeit creepy tails. And wild rats, which are behaviorally different from domestic rats, actually did not cause the Black Death in Europe during the 14th century, at least according to some current science. So that's like a long lasting stigma. For a personal story, I had the best rat in the world in college that was assigned to me during a psych class. She gave the softest, tiniest little licks and would take food from my hands and sit on my shoulder or lap when I studied. And I still regret, frankly, not breaking her out of the psychology lab that she lived in, even though this was several years ago and she's since traveled to the Rainbow Bridge. I suppose this episode is dedicated to you, tiny Casanova de Pippin. To be clear though, we don't want any of you listeners to try and wrangle a wild rat. That's a big no-no. What is a big yes, yes, however, is recognizing that Mr. Wormwood is bad and undeserving of being compared to one of the noblest, tiniest creatures who not only make wonderful pets, but who have helped us humans advance dramatically in the sciences. 
And that's our little The More You Know. Well said. And, you know, I really love that name. It's a, it's a very noble big name, and I like it. Thank um, you. No problem. And, <laughs> yeah. And, you know, it's, I mean, with, with rats, you know, the other book that they'll think about is uh, The Witches, where, where rats are, you know, not as evil as they are portrayed here. So it seems like, you know, Dahl, Dahl was aware of this, but Mr. Wormwood was especially ratty. Yeah. Um, Let me give one little quick shout out to the book Stargirl. The main protagonist Mm -hmm. had a fantastic pet rat. So if you're in doubt and if you need a good new read, I highly, highly, highly recommend the book Stargirl. Awesome. Cool. And speaking of going back to The More You Know, Michael, the son here, appears to be fascinated to know more about this corrupt lesson that his father is sharing on how to swindle the car customers, punctuating his father's lecture with short questions and quick words of affirmation that his father just doesn't deserve. Dahl writes, Michael seemed to have inherited his father's love of crookery. Yeah, and we'll dive in deeper to this at the close of the pod when we do a character study on Michael. He's going to Mm -hmm. be our feature character today. But what I find to be so sad here is that we get to see in real time how mentors, here a father, can corrupt their mentees, here a son. Mr. Wormwood makes it abundantly clear that Michael cannot share his trade secrets with anyone. Asking his son, you don't want to put me in the jug, do you? And the jug is another word for jail or prison. So here, the reader gets a tacit admission from Mr. Wormwood, realizing that his actions and the actions that he's encouraging his own flesh and blood to engage in are ones that put them both at risk of being jailed. Yeah, and it's it's so unfair to the mentee in this situation, right? Because really, what choice does he have? Uh, Michael promises not to tell a soul, and asks whether this mileage treatment is done to many cars. And of course it is. So, and yeah, and fascinating during this lesson, Mr. Wormwood just basically forgets that Matilda is in the room at all, and she is engaged as a passive listener. And I think that's another reflection here of Roald Dahl recognizing that there are instances in our lives where we may be in a crowded room and people pretend that we don't exist, but that doesn't mean that we don't, or that you're being talked over, but that doesn't stop your ears from remaining on. And so I find this to be really, really fascinating. And so once Mr. Wormwood confides that he drops the mileage to under 10,000 miles for each and every car that comes into his shop, Matilda has decided that she, unlike her brother, cannot remain silent any longer, saying that his actions are just bad and she has had enough, yelling out, this is even more dishonest than the sawdust. It's disgusting. You're cheating people who trust you. And of course she's right. And of course this is when Mr. Wormwood learns the errors of his ways thanks to the plucky, intelligent daughter, and they all lived happily ever after. Pot over the end. Right? If only it were so. Wrong. (laughs) Mr. Wormwood doubles down on his cruelty by telling his daughter that she shouldn't eat the food since it was bought with the profits of his ill deeds, and each of them 
then digs their heels in to their respective positions. Flush-cheeked and furious, he gaslights Matilda's critiques, shouting at her loud enough and long enough to get even the attention of the inattentive Mrs. Wormwood, who of course comes in to save Matilda and Michael from the corrupting influences of her husband. And they all lived happily ever after, pot over the end, right? Yeah, she comes swooping in to save the day. No, no. Again, <laughs> not so much. Uh, she she not only agrees with her husband's position, but she tells the one person in the house who's actively trying to keep the family from a second generation of criminal activity. You know, she Mrs. Wormwood tells Matilda that she's got a nerve talking to her father like that, and she should keep her, quote, nasty mouth shut so that the family can watch television in peace. Which just honestly punches me in the gut every time I read that. Yeah, yeah, same. Now that both our stomachs are roiling, let's talk about that television time that's so precious to the Wormwoods. Every night the Wormwoods eat TV dinners, which pretty much guarantees that they're not enjoying a healthy diet. And every night the Wormwoods sit around the television and watch programs together, which also pretty much guarantees that they're spending most of their time together in complete silence. Wanting to enjoy a book rather than an American soap opera playing in the background um, on the television... Matilda asks her mom if she could eat dinner in the dining room, a.k.a. the actual room intended for dining by its name, so that she can relax and read her book in peace. Mm -hmm. Now, sensing his daughter is about to gain access to something that brings her joy, in which Mr. Wormwood doesn't gather any joy from at all, Mr. Wormwood then intervenes and sharply proclaims that, quote, Suffer, supper is a family gathering, and no one leaves the table till it's over. And I'm going to agree with that little slip there. It is a suffering supper time, for sure. <laughs> Relying on facts, of course, Matilda counters by pointing out significant things like no one's eating at the table, and they're resigned to eating dinners in a, quote, floppy aluminum container with separate compartments for stewed meat, boiled potatoes, and peas that sit on their knees, a.k.a college meals. Maybe appetizing if you're in college and have five dollars to your name, but you know, not appetizing to Matilda. And it's at this time that Matilda's father deflects rhyme and reason to prevent Matilda from accessing her books that we see something shift, possibly for the first time, in Matilda herself. It's when her father says in a soft and dangerous voice, when her father asks, what's wrong with watching the telly? Quote, Matilda didn't trust herself to answer him, so she kept quiet. She could feel the anger boiling up inside her. She knew, she knew it was wrong to hate her parents like this, but she was finding it very hard not to do. All the reading she had done had given her a view of life that they had never seen. If only they would read a little Dickens or Kipling, they would soon discover there is more to life than cheating people and watching television. And another thing, she resented being told constantly that she was ignorant and stupid when she knew she wasn't. And for us Game of Thrones fans out there, um, uh -huh. I'm pretty sure she's got a little bit of that Stark wolf's blood in her. Yeah. Um, but frankly, like it or not, this kind of internal dialogue of anger boiling and her wanting to act out and to hurt someone who has hurt her in such a visceral negative way just just facts on the table this shows like it or not she is her father's daughter and we see this happening as that rot is taking hold of her and consuming her thought process 
Quote, the anger inside her went on boiling and boiling. As she lay in bed that night, she made a decision. She decided that every time her father or mother was beastly to her, she would get her own back in some way or another. A small victory or two would help her to tolerate their idiocies and would stop her from going crazy. The chapter ends with an explicit command to the reader. Quote, you must remember that she was still hardly five years old and it is not easy for someone as small as that to score points against an all-powerful grown-up. Even so, she was determined to have a go. Her father, and after all that had happened in front of the telly that evening, was first on her list. And I mean, you can, you can hear Arya Stark going, mm -hmm. Harry Wormwood, Joffrey, Cersei, Meryn <laughs> Trant. You can just hear it playing over and over again. Yeah. That, that, yeah, Arya Stark is right. And like little Arya, she is getting ready to upend that power dynamic. Maybe not quite in the same way that Arya did, but yeah, m many reviewers uh, and critics of this book, of which there are many, like uh, as is the case with other doll books, seem to miss that Roald Dahl is making this express call to action in his readers, both young and old. We, we the readers, really must acknowledge that there's this power dynamic between children and grown-ups that exists. You know, and that's really one of the things that I think attracts people to Game of Thrones as well, is, is that, you know, they, they see these Stark kids from a young age wrestle with that dynamic and sometimes upend it. Right. You know, with, with, with Dahl here, we have to acknowledge that there is this power dynamic and it's easy to forget when you're the big person with all the power. And of course, it's not just size, it's experience, knowledge of social cues, the power of the purse, it's, it's everything. And this truth is impossible to ignore when you're the little person without access to power. In these last three sentences, there's direction to the reader. Older readers, parents, or returning readers like we are, are reminded of the power they wield and that over whom they rule, what kind of obligations and influences their power wields. There's also kind of a, a warning buried in there that if you don't treat those younglings whom over you rule, they may be willing to stage an uprising if you do not rule wisely. And, and the young readers who read this text and may feel isolated or alone or bullied or simply need to feel that they've got a comrade in arms, young readers may be emboldened to stage their own coups in the household if they find that they're not being, being treated fairly and kindly. Yeah, it's, it's a very subversive thing because he's giving these, these young readers something to connect with that really is, you know, kind of has this fight the power mentality. You know, Calvin and Hobbes, we mentioned uh, Calvin in the first episode, and he and Matilda have a lot in common here as well. Calvin doesn't face the same type of abuse that Matilda does, but those comic strips are also constantly aware of the power dynamic that exists between Calvin and adults. Calvin, there's no choice but to eat his peas or get in the bath or go to school. It's just what's done. And to the powerless, there's no ability to appeal or argue. They just have to do it. And whether or not there's a good underlying reason isn't the point at all. The point is that it's a matter of perspective here. Right. And I think with that, we have closed out chapter two and should now focus on Michael and consider mm -hmm. whether or not he's powerful or powerless. 
so we're starting our character study with Michael Wormwood. So why don't we give a few quick kind of character stats about him? Mm -hmm. He's the older brother. He's the firstborn. And he's 10 years old. So he's right at the age where he certainly, if we're in the world of Harry Potter, would have manifested his magic. And he's one year away from ideally receiving his owl letter. Um, Roald Dahl writes that he's, quote, obedient. In subsequent chapters that we'll be covering, we see him struggle a little bit, certainly more than Matilda, when it comes to writing numbers down when talking about the money and the cars that his father is selling during a kind of early business lesson, if you will. But he crouches over his pad and pen and writes carefully. So you can see, though he lacks his sister's almost immediate, easy finesse with things, he's dedicated to the process. Roald Dahl also refers to Michael beginning as early as chapter one as, quote, perfectly normal, which reminds me very much of um, the chapter one description of the Dursley's household, you know, <laughs> quote, they're perfectly normal, thank you very much. It's, it's a nice, quick way for the author to establish there's what's to be expected, which is Michael, and mm-hmm. then there's the extraordinary, which is Matilda. Right. It's almost like Michael's like, the control test subject, right? He's the he's the normal one. He's kind of this baseline, and and you're totally I, I totally see what you're saying, right? Because he when he's writing numbers slowly and carefully, he's being deliberate, and it's not like he's he's dumb, but it's also not like he's Matilda at the same time, and so he's just this kind of like average average character. Yep, I really liked your point too. I think what we should address now, from the powerless perspective, Roald Dahl writes and describes Michael as young, normal, and yet seems to almost imply and and states in blunt terms that Michael seemed to have acquired his father's love of crookery and crime. But like you were alluding to, Will, does Michael even have a chance to fight back? I mean, isn't there, I think if we put on our tinfoil hat and we pretend as if we're a member of the Wormwood household, he was alone in that household before Matilda for the first five years of his life. If we see how Harry Wormwood is handling Matilda as the youngest girl, are we to assume that just because of the gender disparity, there's this stark difference? Or perhaps did Michael have to absorb all of that hatred for the first five years of his life? Yeah, I think you're totally right. Because kind of like earlier in this chapter where we talked about the the verbal combat between Mr. Wormwood and Matilda and how it probably wasn't the first time that that happened. You're right. It's not, it's also very likely, very probable, in fact, that Mr. Wormwood was treating Michael the same way that he treated Matilda. And unfortunately, Michael being a perfectly normal son is not going to be uh, a kid who could have pushed back. And so there's really the potential that there was a kind of a, a coping mechanism or a compensation mechanism from Michael and that being, you know, fascinated with learning the tricks of the trade and inheriting his father's love of crookery, you know, 
inheritance implies genetics, right? And it's very, very likely here. And I, I think I think you've got a great point that it's 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 probably not genetic. It's something that he's had to cope with from years of abuse. Yep. And you have to imagine that in such a toxic household, any outward manifestations that are pleasant are going to be like a flame to to a powerless moth. Mm-hmm, um, right. I mean, what what's interesting here is that there's absolutely no adjectives to describe the tone of Mr. Wormwood's demand about, you know, remaining silent about the criminal activity and what Michael's tone was when he made that promise to remain silent. You can almost hypothesize if we continue with this tinfoil theory, mm-hmm. perhaps Michael did used to speak out. Yeah. And sure. he learned and he learned the futility of it. Right. Yeah. You either, you know, it's how abuse is persistent, how Michael probably would have learned that, like you said, if he had spoken out about it, he probably uh, would have been shouted down. Uh, you know, if he didn't express interest, he probably would have been dismissed as dumb. And so, of course, he's going to express an interest in it. That's completely natural. It's totally understandable. And if we can maybe push back even against the esteemed doll here, mm-hmm. Perhaps Michael isn't his father's son mm-hmm. as much as Matilda is, because unlike the the Dursleys, Uncle Vernon and Dudley, both of them being very abusive to Harry, um, and Petunia too, just as much as Mrs. Wormwood is, you don't see Michael ever engage with Matilda in a negative way. Never happens. Never happens. And so if I can, kind of moving ahead, thinking to when we see him in subsequent chapters battling or being concerned about a potential ghost in the house, if this kid is magical, I'd like to imagine him, frankly, as a brave little Gryffindor. Mm -hmm. Um, In a way, because... He's kind of surviving the best that he can with the Gryffindor mentality, whatever the cost, whatever it takes. Mm -hmm. And he's just this brave boy. When he seizes a table lamp, he rips the plug out of a socket. And it's, it's sad that we never get to see him and Matilda's relationship ever really develop because it almost seems like at school and with five-year age gap, it was just too much, even assuming, and we'll get to this in a second, even assuming that Michael's even going to the same school, Mm -hmm. because I've got a little tinfoil hat that Matilda's school is almost a feeder program for Hogwarts. And we'll <laughs> we'll see that more when when we see Mish Trunchbull's antics and how kids fly and fall and get put into absolutely impossible situations. Interestingly, while we hear of Michael in and out of the chapters for about the first six chapters, after that it's nothing. We hear mm-hmm, right. nothing about Michael until the very end. Yeah. And, you know, it's it's a good point, too, that he and Matilda never develop a relationship because one of the things that we learn about Matilda is that she gets along with kids. Right. You know, she she gets along with adults. She gets along with kids. She's brilliant. And but at the same time, uh, she has empathy and can make friends. But you just don't get that sense that she and Michael have this relationship. You wonder sometimes, at least in, in Chapter five, for example, 
what, if anything, Michael said or did when he went off to school on his own and Matilda was left alone. This kind of jumps jumps ahead a little bit, but since we're exploring Michael, it's important for us to look at this pertinent quote from chapter five about Matilda specifically. Quote, she always had to stay alone on weekday afternoons and whenever she was told to shut up, she had to shut up. I just, if I had a magic wand, I would love a chance to peer into Michael's head, just like mm-hmm. I wish I had a magic wand to peer into Snape's head a little bit earlier to see the internal machinations of what is going on and how he's trying to survive what just has to be an awful home life. Yeah, yeah. And there's no way that it's so unpleasant for Matilda and it's some idyllic situation for Michael too, right? It's got to be terrible. It's got to be hell for both of them. Yep. And since we've been a little bit pragmatic Peggy and doom and gloom, I'd like to maybe leave it with a nice, more optimistic quote before we get to the very end of the story. Because Michael, I think, is a little bit of a dreamer. When his father walks into the house, very boisterously loud, interruptive in chapter six, we see Michael, quote, the son was looking directly ahead out of the window, stuffing himself with bread and peanut butter and strawberry jam. He just sounds like someone like Matilda who is ready to leave the nest at way too early of an age. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we we talked a little before about the how he seemed to inherit his father's love of being a crook and uh, flimflam and all that. But you know, if that's just a coping me- mechanism, and we see this passage here, you know, you're right. Maybe we do have some cause to be optimistic that once Michael does get a little bit older and does get a little more independence, that he can flex his wings a little bit and and fly away. Yep. For any of you readers who are maybe pushing back under. Understandably so, in light of Dahl's language and in light of Michael's apparent support and endorsement of the father, we actually even see this in Matilda later when Miss Trunchbull is screaming at Matilda in Miss Honey's class that her father was a crook, thief, and robber, when an engine of a car, which was filled with sawdust, inevitably fell out of the car and broke the car. It's there that Matilda, who we know, we know for a fact, loathes, hates her father, says he's clever at his business. So to say that just because Michael is flattering a father figure doesn't necessarily mean, for better or worse, that there's endorsement of the father. Right. Absolutely. Yeah, we we always have to keep that dynamic uh, in mind. And also, yeah, that, that, that's a great point that Matilda does defend her father late, later in the story. So I think maybe since we don't want to spoil necessarily the book's ending, mm-hmm. maybe now would be a good place for us to leave with the thoughts to think on. Yeah, sure. And so we have been talking a lot in this episode about power dynamics and relationships. And so the first thing that we want to leave you with, the first question is, what are some of your most meaningful uh, power dynamics and relationships? And what role, if you have, uh, you know, siblings and family members, what role do they play in those? And to end on a positive note, and for a little Mm -hmm. bit of self-promotion, We want you to be a role model for other people who are looking 
like you are for a place for bibliophiles to come and really enjoy turning pages of books and deeply explore them together. So please let them know, please spread the word that you can now officially find us and subscribe to Bohemian Geek Studies on Spotify, on Stitcher, Apple, and perhaps some other places as well. We'll be posting updates on Twitter. You can find us Geek Studies and Instagram Bohemian Geek Studies um, to stay abreast with upcoming podcasts and more news. So please keep sharing your stories and pictures by tagging Bohemian Geek Studies on Twitter and Instagram. Wands up and keep those pages turning. Yep, wands up. Sweet. legitimately okay, repeat on. what you were saying because okay. that was that was really brilliant okay but yeah so you you were saying that you know we were kind of talking about how we hope our listeners don't leave this with a sense of you know doom and gloom and uh, downer but you know i don't think they will because we just don't talk about characters like miss phelps and, and michael that much because they kind of get lost in the shuffle and undeservedly we, we sh- really should be talking about them but instead it's just so easy to focus on matilda because she's the title character she's just this powerhouse you know to borrow your phrase x-men level mutant you know right and we should take we should be talking about the ordinary characters like michael because they're just as affected by the villains in this story uh you know namely mr wormwood right and i gotta say Matilda's turning dark and Michael seems to be walking towards the light. So I guess we'll, we'll find out what happens next. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah.